Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. Now, if you have your Bibles, uh, I'd like us to look at this portion of James. And it is a hard portion. (laughs) The whole book is a hard book. But this section is a very difficult passage to um, interpret, to get at the nuance. There's a lot of words in here that are only place used is right here. And it also is hard stuff. These are hard words that James now shares with us. He says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Oh, my goodness. Are these not harsh, hard words? They certainly are. And they're meant for all of us. He focuses on the rich, but who is that? You know, in light of comparisons and relative evaluations, there's a sense in which all of us are seen here, depending on who you compare yourself to. Isn't that true? But as we've been going through the book of Yaakov, the book of James, James is concerned, ultimately, let's put it this way, James is concerned with fruitfulness. He's concerned that our faith is a faith that is in action. Now, maybe we haven't been clear, but when we talk about action, we just don't mean doing this and doing that. We we mean being responsive to God, being submitted to Him. A faith that's active is not just a faith going here or there or doing this or doing that, but a faith that is willing to submit to the work of the Spirit in such a way that we become something other than what we have been. An active faith is a faith of submission and surrender to the work of God to enable us to become in a way that we've not been before and could not otherwise be unless God himself worked on us. Now, this is not to say it's all in the hands of God, we have nothing to do with it. It's neither to say we have everything to do with it and God's not involved. There's always this issue of balance. That's a key word in the faith community. 
balance. Because we can always fall to one extreme or the other. God is gracious, but that doesn't mean we're not submissive. We are to be submissive, but that doesn't mean God is not at work in this. It's somewhat cooperative, but it is ultimately God moving in us and helping us to be what we need to be in order to become what he wants us to become. He wants our faith not to merely be cerebral. He wants our faith not merely to be abstract. He wants our faith not merely to be an ascent to truths, although it needs to be that. But he wants our faith to be something that transforms and compels us to live differently. So when he opens his letter, he tells us that a genuine faith, a true faith, an active faith will engage in the trials of life or be engaged by the trials of life and will persevere in them. So one characteristic of an active faith is perseverance. It's standing strong. It is what he talks about of hooper menowing, hyper standing, so that when the trials come, we're not double-minded, we're not wishy-washy with respect to our faith in God. We don't fall apart when it appears as if God may be silent or uninvolved. We trust he is involved. He's not being silent. I need to persevere and stand up under the pressure that is pressing down on me. God's intention is to create something new and greater and better in me. A perseverance that is God-given, that is not double-minded, but is not questioning the goodness of God, but rather is one that trusts in his goodness despite the hardship that one might be undergoing. That's one way he wants fruitfulness in our lives. He wants us to be a persevering, enduring kind of people that bears testimony to his compassion and his grace. Not only that, he tells us later as we go further into his letter, he tells us that the kind of faith he wants is a kind of faith that welcomes the word of God that he has implanted within us and by which he has saved us. He tells us this in chapter 1. That we are to be welcomers of the word of God. The kind of faith he's looking for is a kind of faith in an individual that looks at God's word and says, I welcome these truths. They may be hard truths like here about the rich. But I welcome this. I'm not ready to speak too quickly against it. I'm not ready to be angry about this or that. But I'm slow to speak and anxious to welcome whatever it is God has for me to know that he's revealed in his word to me and which he has implanted in my soul. I am like a deer who pants after the water brook and needs a quench, my thirst quenched. We need the word of God to quench us in our life and in our walk. The kind of faith he's talking about is a kind of faith that perseveres during hardships. The kind of faith that welcomes the word of God, even when some of the word of God may be hard to welcome. We will welcome it. He talks about the kind of faith that considers those that are less fortunate than ourselves. 
He says, the kind of faith I'm talking about, the kind of fruitfulness is a kind of fruitfulness in which there is no favoritism. There is no special platform because you're a person of means, a person of wisdom, or a person of money. That those are things that do not enter into the equation when we consider what God has for us. So there is no favoritism. So if somebody comes in, we're not going to give them the best seat in the house. We're not going to give them the best seat at the table. We're going to treat him respectfully, just as we ought to treat those that are less fortunate with honor and dignity as well. He brings this up multiple times in his letters. He's concerned about this. He's a pastor of poor people in Jerusalem, and so it makes sense that he'd be concerned about it. The kind of faith he's talking about is a faith that reaches into our character, makes us more persevering during challenges, a faith that exhibits itself in the welcoming and welcoming, the welcoming and embracing of God's word, the things that are wonderful to take, God loves us, and the things that are challenging, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. It's a kind of faith, fruitfulness, transformation that says it doesn't matter who you are. In the sight of God, we are all equal. And in our sight, we're all equal as well. It's a kind of faith, he says, that is moved by sacrificing for the needs of others. And therefore, he draws our attention to Abraham, who is willing to offer up his son, and Rahab, who is willing to risk her life. It means the kind of service we give is sacrificial in nature. It means that when I'm tired, I may still get up and go. When it means that I'm supposed to be with my family, I may not be because there's a need I need to be at. When it means I, need, I would love to live here, but I'm not. I'm going to live there because that's where there's a need and that's where God would have me. It's sacrificial in nature. And thus it must be willing to give what's most precious to us and even if it means our very lives. And many in our world are doing that. That's what James is talking about. He's talking about the kind of faith that resists quarreling and fighting among one another. That resists critiquing, criticizing, complaining with one another. He says, why do these quarrels and things war among us? Why do we have that? Because we have uncontrolled desires. He says, not only are our desires uncontrolled, they're unfulfilled. And so we do whatever we want in order to get that fulfillment. And they are deeply sinful in nature. He uses the word pleasures. We get the word hedonism from, selfishness. And so why do we quarrel and fight? Because we have desires we can't control, we have desires we can't fulfill, and we have desires that are of a sinful kind of passion. Rather, he says, look, we need to become the kinds of people that submit ourselves to God and resist the evil one. The kind of person that humbles oneself before God, because then in due time, he will raise us up. He tells us in this portion in chapter 5, he, uh, chapter 4, chapter 3, he says, the kind of faith I'm talking about is the kind of faith in which one's life is controlled. He uses the, the term tongue, but he's not talking about speech per se. He's talking about life. Remember what Yeshua said, it's not what comes, goes into a man or a person that, that uh, distorts them, condemns them, but it's what comes out of a person. 
And what comes out, more often than not, comes out verbally. Therefore, he says, don't desire to be many teachers. Because what you say is a reflection of who you are. And if you're a teacher, you're going to use your tongue more than others. They're going to see who you are more often. And that shouldn't be a problem, but you need to know that there will be greater judgment. What he's concerned about, not just for teachers, but for everyone, is that we are a people who exhibit faith through self-control. Notice he's not talked anything about moving mountains, you know, healing this disease or that disease, casting out. He's talking about character. Even when he talks about what kind of wisdom God gives uh, to us, every aspect of the wisdom he speaks about is a characteristic that he would want us to exhibit. And the one that he repeats over and over is peace, being a peacemaker that flows out of purity of heart. When we get to chapter 4, he then deals again with an active faith as it deals with quarreling, as I just mentioned, but also with regard to God's will. I think it's really fascinating how James speaks of this. He says we have to be a people that make our decisions on the basis of what God wants, not merely our own wisdom and rationale. Why? Because he tells us, number one, none of us has all knowledge. So as reasonable and as wise as our thoughts might be, he tells us you need to be concerned because it is not all wise or all reasonable or all wisdom. It may seem right to us, But not everything that seems right to us is what God has for us. And therefore, he says, we should be saying if the Lord wills, not merely what seems wise. He says, not only this, we not only have limited knowledge, we have limited days. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, he says. What is your life? It's a vapor that is blown out in the cold air, and it's there, and then it disappears. And so, therefore, you need to look to God, and we need to rely upon him in all of our decision-making, and in all of our desires. Now, when we get to chapter 5, he then says, he directs his attention to the rich. Right off the bat, we have to ask ourselves, who are the rich? Now, one way to deal with this passage and it not be so upsetting to us is to simply say the rich are unbelievers. And there are many that take that point of view, many good scholars. And when you do that, of course, then it makes this a lot easier because I'm not an unbeliever and therefore I don't have to worry about this stuff because this is pretty hard words. But I don't think that's what he means. I think he is talking to believers. Well, if I took the time, and I don't have the time, but if you went through the book of James, you would see over and over again he's addressing brothers. Brothers. In chapter, uh, in chapter 4, uh, he has mentioned this over and over again, that he is speaking to those who are members of the household of God. And in chapter 4, he says, what causes quarrels and causes fights among you? He's speaking about the brethren to whom he's writing, the 12 tribes who are dispersed, many of whom uh, and who he has in mind particularly are those believers among the 12 tribes. He He has said, come now, you who say, in verse 13, and now he repeats it, come now, you rich, weep and howl. This is about materialism. It is about wealth. And wealth can be a real problem. I mean, it could be a real blessing. Just like everything could be a blessing or a problem. It can be a real blessing if wealth is used appropriately and properly. And so he wants us to be aware of how 
God's blessings of wealth are to be utilized. When he writes, he writes harsh words because he's concerned about judgment. That comes up over and over again. He says, look, the miseries that are coming upon you. Look what he says. You have laid up, verse 3, treasures in the last days. He uses this phrase in verse Five, you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. He's looking to the return of the Lord when there will be a time of judgment. For the unbelievers, indeed, it is a time of fire. But, you know, for believers, it is also a time of judgment. We're told we will all stand before the Bema seat of Messiah, the judgment seat of Messiah. It will not be a judgment of salvation that is secure. We read that with regard to the new covenant. It's an eternal covenant which God has implanted in our hearts and soul. His very being, his very presence. And he who has begun a good work will complete it. We're not talking about salvation. But there will come a time of judgment with respect to rewards before the the judgment seat of Messiah. And if those who are wealthy have not utilized their resources for the betterment of the kingdom to help those that are in need, there will be a day of reckoning coming. But his point is that wealth is a concern that we need to take note of. If we're to be fruitful, and if we are fortunate to have resources, we have to be wise with them, whether the resources are large or small. There are just greater dangers in how one uses resources when you have much of them. That's true about anything. So if you have much money, you have a greater challenge to make sure that your money is being used for the things God would have you to use them. If you have a lot of talents and gifts, well, then you have a greater responsibility to use those talents and gifts in a way that glorifies the Lord and helps others. So his concern here is that we be fruitful and a people of faith that utilize these resources in a meaningful and significant way. So he tells us, first of all, if we don't use our money, particularly he's talking about now, our valuables in a meaningful way, look what he says in verse 2, your riches have rotted. In the ancient world, one aspect of wealth was food, the kind of food you can eat or that you might store. And so he uses the word rotted because, well, one Reflection of wealth was the food that you had. And so look what he says. He says, your riches have rotted. I think he's probably focusing on wealth that is signified by food. He then says, your garments are moth-eaten. So here, now, wealth is sometimes signified in the ancient world by the clothes that you wore. And so those that were wealthier wore many more kinds of garments and Garments that were more costly. We read of Lydia, for example, in the book of Acts, who was a dyer in purple from Thyatira. Purple was a very expensive dye in the ancient world. She was a wealthy person. That's why she was able to move around and come into different places. And so he says that when resources are not used, he talks here about them becoming moth-eaten. And then he talks about gold and silver becoming corroded. Technically, gold and silver don't corrode. They tarnish. But his point is they lose their value. So here's the point I think he's making. When resources are not used, they lose their value. 
In fact, what he literally says, when he speaks in verse 5, he says, You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. What James is concerned about is not saving. He's not saying you shouldn't have a savings account. Scriptures are very clear about that, to prepare for the future. In fact, you remember in the Proverbs, Proverbs 6, it talks about the ant. And he says, take a look at the ant, you sluggard. And what does the ant do? He gathers food during certain seasons so that during the season when there isn't food to gather, he's got food. There's nothing wrong with saving. What's wrong here is hoarding. And so when you accumulate so much wealth that it's not being used and it, begin, it will lose its value is what he's talking about. What those with resources need to be concerned with is that they are not just allowing their funds to not be used for the goodness of God's kingdom. Someone has said that if one's lifestyle increases in accordance with the increase of their income, they are sinning. Because one ought to consider The greater resources are not to increase your lifestyle, but to enable one to give more to the needs of God's kingdom. I had heard this said about John Wesley. John Wesley was one of the greatest evangelists of his time in the 1700s. He was educated at Oxford. His brother was Charles Wesley, who wrote for 04,000 Tongues and many other hymns. They traveled together and did great ministry. He graduated from Oxford studying theology, and he felt led, maybe that's not quite the right word, he decided he would serve as a missionary. So he went to the New World. It wasn't the United States yet, this is before the Revolutionary War, mid-1700s. But he came to the, the, I was going to say the U.S., he came to America, or North America, and he worked among the Indians, Native Americans, in Georgia. And then after his time, he decided to sail back to England. While on the seas, a terrible storm had erupted. And he was scared to death. He thought he would die. And he couldn't understand why he had this great fear. He went below and he saw a group of Moravians, German believers. And they were huddled together in prayer. And they were singing hymns. And they were giving glory to God. And they were thanking him. And they were joyful at this time when it looked like, it felt like, the ship was going under. And that stuck in Wesley's mind that he was not like them. Why? He had studied like some of them may have. He was a theological, theologically educated individual. But he didn't have what they had, a sense of hope and peace and a lack of fear. When he got off the boat in England, he went down Alder's Gate, and he saw a sign outside a building that said a Bible study, and he walked in, and there were a group of other Moravians that were gathered, and they were studying the book of Romans, and the teacher was simply reading from Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Romans. And he was simply reading the introduction to it. 
And while he was reading the introduction, Wesley said he felt his heart, these are his words, strangely warmed. And it was at that point he now became a believer. And he devoted himself to the service of God. You know, the idea of a prayer closet comes from John Wesley. Off his bedroom, he had a closet built that was big enough for a desk and a chair. And it was there that every morning he would sit at the, at the desk and sh- sit on the chair at the desk, open his Bible, and he'd spend hours in prayer. Came back to the United States, traveled up and down the eastern seaboard, doing all kinds of evangelistic outings, like George Whitfield was another contemporary. He established what's known as Methodism, came out of his movement, not today's Methodism. He would probably be in shock of what's going on in some of those churches, but he established that. But here's the thing I learned about Wesley I didn't know. When he first started out in his ministry, and he was a young man, he made 30 pounds for the year. And he tithed 10% and gave three. Some years later, he got a raise. And he made 40 pounds. So he gave away, he gave away 10 and lived on the 30. Years later, as he began to do a lot of writing, and today he's written voluminously, began to make a little more money and he made 70 pounds a year. And he gave away 40. And toward the end of his life, he was making 1,400 pounds a year. And he gave away all but 30. His whole life, he lived the same lifestyle of meeting the necessities and convenience, but not the luxury and the opulence. That's what Yaakov is talking about. He's talking about self-indulgence, not necessity and needs. He's talking about hoarding and not saving. Now, what's interesting is the Bible doesn't tell us what is the line between hoarding and saving. See, everybody's got to make that decision. Everyone's got to determine when is much too much and when is much just right, (laughs) you know. And that's all for us to answer. But that's what Yaakov is concerned about. He's concerned that we might be moved to repentance, that we would become more generous than we might otherwise think we are. Because more often than not, we don't need to live on what it is we tell ourselves we need to live on. We can live on a whole lot less, and we can give away a whole lot more. We don't speak about giving here. You know, I was just thinking about that. We don't talk about giving. Very often, I've been asked to. But this section is, leads naturally into it, doesn't it? And this is a good thing because faith in action is to be a faith that sacrifices, a faith that is concerned for the less fortunate, a faith that is willing to trust God and not things, be it our 401, be it our weekly paycheck, be it whatever it might be. That we don't trust things, but we trust God. That's a desperate place to be. This is a severe statement because it's a serious one. If we don't have it right with regard to our finances, we're in danger of two very terrible things. Look what he tells us. He tells us, first of all, we're in danger of putting our faith in that which will corrode, 
that which will lose its value rather than in that which will only gain in value, the Lord himself. But here's another problem he mentions. If we put our focus on money, and remember what Paul says, the love of money is the root of all evil. When we put our focus on money, I know none of us would say we love money. I know none of us would say that. But I think there are times, I'll speak for myself, when I do love money. And what I have found or what I've seen is that when there's too much focus on money, it destroys your character. It not only loses its own value, you lose your value as a person. Not only do things corrode, but our character corrodes. And look how he describes it. He says, when we allow money to take that kind of focus and attention upon us, he says, the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, they're crying out against you. We start becoming selfish and we don't pay our debts. We don't pay them promptly. Do you know how often that happens in the congregation of believers? You know, there's a lot of interaction. Like there's, I know a chiropractor who goes to uh, MacArthur's church. He's a great chiropractor. And he's always, you know, I haven't seen him in a long time, but I remember years ago he said, you ever need me? Just come and see me, you know. And he's willing, and sometimes he says, I, you don't have to pay me anything. This is, I'm just doing this for a gift. You're a pastor. I want to help you out. How often do people help one another out in the body, and we don't pay them promptly for their service to us? Not only that, but he not only talks about failure to pay promptly, he says, uh, and they're crying out against you, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of, of the Lord of hosts. We don't pay them generously. You know, we expect to get a break because they're a believer, they're a friend. Oh, I thought you would just do this for me. What Yaakov is concerned about is that we have a generous heart that it doesn't matter whether believers, brethren, or whatever, we're willing to do this for you. And we're willing to pay promptly and generously. We're not looking to s- stiff you. We're not stiffing one another. And we do that to one another out of a sense of attitude that says, I'm entitled. Because we're brothers in the Lord, and I'm poor, and I'm this, or whatever it is. Yaakov is saying the love of money can corrode your soul and to make you less generous than you really think you might be and less prompt in helping those that are in need. This is serious business, right? Now, how do we address it? I think that there are two things that can help us address how we use our money. And it's here in the text. He said judgment is coming. By the way, he makes it very clear because he says it's reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. It's the only place in the New Covenant Scriptures where Adonai Tzavaot is used in the Brit Hadashah. Paul in the book of Romans quotes it, but he doesn't use it. Here, Yaakov is calling upon us and he's telling us the Lord of hosts, not our Heavenly Father. But the cries of the poor, the disenfranchised, those that are being taken advantage of, has come up to the Lord of armies. And so what he's telling us is, number one, one of the ways to deal with this is to remember the Lord's coming. He's coming again. And when he comes, he's going to have the disenfranchised, particularly in his, in his heart and mind. He's coming to rescue those that need rescuing. 
So if we realize there's coming a day of reckoning and there's coming a day when all of this is going to end and dissipate, it will help us to realize that what we have is temporary and therefore needs to be invested now for the kingdom of God. I think a real, one of the reasons why small churches struggle financially is because the lack of generous giving like this. If everyone really tithed what we make, I wonder what would be the result. I wonder. But he's saying one of the things that can help us is to remember the Lord is coming. And when he comes, the opportunity to give will end. And when he comes, there'll be a a time of reckoning. Have we given as we ought to have given? But there's a second thing I think he's telling us. Not only ought we to remember the Lord is coming, and I really would like to do a series on the return of the Lord soon. But not only is the Lord coming, but the Lord has come and died for us. Now, I know I'm, we're going late here, but you have to, I have to show you this. Because to me, this is such a key phrase. Look at the end of chapter 5. There are two ways to take this passage. In verse 6, he says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. It's singular. I don't remember what the New International says. Uh, But it's different. I'm reading from the ASV here, the American Standard. Uh, I mean the ESV, the Evangelical Standard Version. And literally it does say that. Literally it says, You have condemned and murdered the righteous one. Dikayon. The righteous one. And then it says, He does not resist you. Now there are two ways to take it. It could be a collective noun. You know, you have harmed the poor. You have uh, condemned the righteous one who can't resist you. He can't oppose you because he's too weak. But the problem with that for me is the singularity of the phrase here, but also he doesn't say he cannot. What he says is he does not. There's a voluntariness in this phrase. So I think what Yaakov is referring to when he speaks about you have condemned and murdered the righteous one, you have abused the poor. I think he's talking about Messiah. When we are not giving and not giving generously, we're to be reminded Messiah has died for us. And it's part of our, our selfishness, which is our sinfulness, which has led to his, the necessity for his death. And he voluntarily gives himself. It says, and he does not Resist you. He willingly comes and he gives his life. When we think of what, and we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we think that Yeshua gave his whole to us. How can we hoard what he then has blessed us with that he's given to us over and above the giving of himself? But the thing that is so cool, and I'll just share this very quickly, How often Messiah is referred to in Scripture as the righteous one. We know he's the righteous one. But I just sort of sat back and I said, gee, where is it he referred to as that? Let me share some of these references because they're very powerful and they're encouraging to me. In Acts chapter 3, verse 14, when Peter speaks, he says, But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer Barabbas to be granted to you. When Stephen stands up, he says, Which of the prophets did, you, did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, 
whom you have now betrayed and murdered. In Acts 22, he says, and he, speaking about Ananias, who is commissioned by God to receive Paul after his eyes, so that his eyes would be opened after they were blinded when he saw Messiah in his glory. And Ananias comes to Paul and he says to Paul, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. Peter writes, For Messiah also suffered once for sins, the righteous one for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. John writes, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. We've talked about that. With the Father, Yeshua, the Messiah, the righteous one. He goes on to say, If you know that he is the righteous one, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. In the same letter in chapter 3, he says, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous, or as he is the righteous one. And of course, where it would certainly be, is in Isaiah 53 where he says, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Messiah is the righteous one. It is to him we are to look and to depend and to be energized by through his spirit in order to be a more generous giver of the blessings God has already given to us. James is calling us to look internally and to ask ourselves the hard question, are we ones that are hoarding or are we ones that are giving? Are we ones who are self-indulgent or are we ones who seek to give to those in need? Are we ones who are living a lifestyle that is way above what our income need us to be at? Or are we ones who, like John Wesley, for example, lived on the barest of necessities so that he could give away all that he could give? We all have to look inside to ourselves and ask that hard question. If we don't, we will be like Our character will change, and we'll take advantage of others. But if we look inside and we remind ourselves, do this in remembrance of me, we remind ourselves, the Lord is coming again. This is now our opportunity to give to his kingdom, for there will come a time when we won't be able to. He's coming again. There will be a time of reckoning. We will answer for what he has given to us in all spheres of our life. Are we giving it away? And are we giving it out joyfully, gladly, for the benefit of others? And are we remembering the righteous one who gave everything for us? And are we following in his ways? A faith that is active is a faith that is responsive, welcomes the word. (laughs) And in welcoming it, is not merely a hearer of the word, but is a doer as well. So let's pray. Let's stand together and we'll pray.
Our God and Father, we are grateful for all that you have entrusted to us. By the world's standards, we are all pretty wealthy here in the United States. But Lord, it's sometimes a hard thing to differentiate between the distinctions that, John, that James is making here. And so, Lord, we need your guidance so that, Father, we would be a blessing to you and we would be obedient to you and we would be faithful to you. So help us to put our faith in action in this way. We pray, Lord, that we would always be anticipating the coming of our Lord and always remembering what he gave of himself for us. And in giving himself for us, may we give all of ourselves to him. And so, Lord, we bless your name. We pray for your help. And we pray for your guidance in this we ask. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.